0: Let's give God some praise for them again. Thank you so much. Turn this up, Mark. Turn the microphone up, Mark, because I can't hear it. I can't hear it. Thank you. Would you join me this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9? Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And I want to read verses 14 through verse 24. Gospel of Mark, chapter nine, verses fourteen through verse twenty four. Hear the word of the Lord, Mark's Gospel, chapter nine, beginning at verse fourteen. When they came back. To the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, since childhood. And it has, and it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Amen. You may be seated. I do believe, but help my unbelief is the cry of a father who's positioned in a posture of desperation. This is the beginning of a series of sermons I'd like to believe to be quite relevant and practical and pointed where the rubber actually meets the road. I'm convinced that if not all of us, most of us, no matter our current status or condition, want to do better and be better. Many of us have discovered the task easier said than done, and some of us have discovered it to be easier for us than others, but I wanna take a moment this morning to interrogate that single line of response from the father who gives what might be considered a conflicting response to Jesus. He, He says to him in very strange terms as Jesus says, all things are possible to the one who believes and the father says, Amazingly, I do believe But I need you to help my unbelief And so I've entitled this sermon Along with this sermon series Lord, I want to do better Help my unbelief That's what sermon is The series title is Lord, I want to do better but the sermon title is Help My Unbelief and so we've struggled at times with trying to do better and trying to be better in fact some because of the frustration in terms of the effort to do better have abandoned the task while others have decided to pursue despite the frustration in the progress my task is to encourage you of two certainties this morning. One, you are not alone while in pursuit of this effort to do better. You are not alone while in pursuit of this effort to do better. In fact, if you could somehow examine the person to your left and to your right, their own lives, if you could look into where they are spiritually and even practically in terms of life, you'll discover that they likewise too are struggling trying to do better. And I want you to see that you're not the only one on this spiritual journey trying to do better and you are discovering that it's a task to say the least. The second thing I want to encourage you of and let you know is that all of us have moments, seasons, frustrations with the whole idea of unbelief. We struggle at this issue of unbelief because we know in all honesty we often exercise weak faith even to a point where we exercise no faith at all. So, we not only have weak faith from time to time, but we also struggle with not having any faith at all. That's the dichotomy of the father's response. So, this morning, I'm just going to give you an overview of the series, particularly in reference to this message, because there's so much more wrapped up in the whole episode of this man and his son that I just want us to get a A a sort of a, a brief picture, an overview picture in our mind of what are we dealing with when we talk about struggling with unbelief and yet on the other hand of our spirit we are consistently crying out, Lord I certainly want to do better. So may we look now at this text because there are times when we not only have weak faith and even unbelieving faith, but yet we can find ourselves sometimes having mountain moving faith. It's it's amazing how it may appear that on one day we have absolutely nothing, and then on the other day it appears that we have overwhelming faith that we could move any mountain that finds itself in our task. And we even find it difficult sometimes to believe and what we read in reference to the word of God. And yet, with that in mind, we have these moments where we do triumph over our unbelief and I want us to witness how faith does help us overcome when we employ it to help us on this journey. That leads us into the text because I'm convinced that the first step in the right direction of doing better, Thinking better, believing better is admitting that I do have a struggle. See, at least the father was willing in the presence of Jesus who said a very interesting statement to him here in the 23rd verse and yet he was willing to say as he looked at his son, Lord, on one day I do believe But on another day, I have an unbelief. I'm struggling with believing with consistency. Now, watch the participants in this narrative because they all play an important part in helping us strengthen our belief in what God has said. The first group I call the first group number one disciples, the the group first disciples Peter, James, John, they are in verse two, I think it is, maybe verse two, I think it is, they are the Peter, James, and John, that first group of disciples who are engaged with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, an important episode because that episode alone would have done enough to sort of jumpstart the incredible need of having belief in what God is saying and doing, and yet they never quite grasp what was happening to them on the Mount of Transfiguration. So these three primary disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, is important. There's a second group that's important. They are historical voices, the historical voices of verse 4, the voice of yesterday, the Elijah and the Moses. Both of them are critical in understanding this issue of unbelief because both engaged in moments of unbelief. Their faith was challenged and they found it a struggle periodically to believe in the voice of God. And it's amazing how in the past. They come out of the past to speak to these disciples In the presence at least by way of example And yet has a word for us who are in the future So we need that first group Peter, James and John They're going to show us something We need this second historical group Which is the voices of Elijah and Moses in verse 4 And then I need the perpetual voice Of Peter here in verse five and six I need his voice because he appears to be the one voice that just doesn't stop talking and yet he's the voice that seems to speak for those disciples who don't either speak for themselves or who have yet harnessed the courage enough to speak up that we who are forward in terms of the future can look back historically and see what their contribution is to the context of developing faith. So we need this perpetuous Peter in chapter 8, beginning I think around verse 38, all the way around, or could be around chapter 8, yeah, about verse 35, maybe maybe 27, all the way down to 38. Peter in his voice of, of confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God and there is an even still dichotomy going on in Peter's own confession on one moment he seems to be professing the faith in God and then the next moment Jesus has to provide a stern rebuke because when he begins to tell him that he must go suffer die but yet rise again Peter says not so and Jesus responds by saying get thee behind me Satan because that's not the Father speaking, that's your flesh speaking. So I, we need Peter. As, as much as we are critical of Peter, Peter yet still exposes and expresses for us boldness. I know he puts his foot in his mouth from time to time, but he's at least willing to tell you what's really going on in his life, he steps forth with a sense of honesty and allows us to see the need of having a perpetuous, continuous voice to say to yourself as well as to those who may be spiritually concerned about you as well, Lord, help me because I want to do better. But there's also another voice. There's another voice right there in verse 7. There is the God Who speaks while those disciples with Jesus are on the Mount of Transfiguration? They are in a kind of revival. You think about this now. They are in a kind of revival. Jesus takes them up to this space where they are to engage in eternity. And what happens, not only is Jesus transfigured into something that they had never seen before, but they get a visitation from the old. The old saints come and begin to commune with Christ. They're in a space where they are experiencing the reviving, refreshing, renewing presence of God. And I identify that point because in a few weeks we are going to be in the same space. We're we're going to usher in the presence, I believe, of God to experience revival, that we might be renewed, that we might be refreshed. And what's amazing about this point is that God speaks with a very imperative voice and yet, These disciples didn't hear it. As Jesus is there transfigured and the disciples is there, God appears and says, this is my beloved, my chosen son. And he gives them one simple command that would have changed everything in their life. Verse 7, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. It says, I can almost hear my mother when I was a child tell me once, she told me once before, are you not listening? Listen to what I'm trying to tell you. And Peter, with his questionable faith periodically, right here on the Mount of Transfiguration, witnessing everything that we only dream to witness. In fact, the four parents of him only dream to witness. And all God says is, this is my appointed prophet, servant, Jesus. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. He will change your entire life if you would just listen. And that's where we struggle at the most. We we struggle at listening to the voice of God. I call it a revival. Luke says in chapter 9 that it was more, excuse me, more like a time of prayer. But, but what is revival if it's not prompted by prayer? They are praying on that mountain that something tremendously would happen in their life, perhaps. Or That God would use them tremendously in a moment that is soon to come. And that moment did come, as we shall see in the text beginning in verse 14. And yet God speaks. And How many contexts does God find us and places us and allows us to walk in where he's trying to speak? And he has but one command, listen to what I'm trying to tell you. There's another group. There's the second group of disciples. They are unnamed in the text, if you look at verse 14, and yet they are critical because they obviously are engaged in some kind of conversation that involves the religious teachers. They are there perhaps experiencing what I call the combatants of faith. Someone there is challenging their faith or, or perhaps it's becoming a skeptic of their convictions as they spew them out. And, and they are there in such deep dialogue that when Jesus comes down from the mountain and notices that they are in conversation, his next question is, what are y'all talking about? Or it could be better said, why are you discussing things with them? They, They don't understand what's going on in your journey. Or why is it that you're having this conversation when your issue is not with them, it's with this father who's here with an ailment of his son that he needs deliverance. You need that crowd because it involves both spectators and the scribes, the skeptics, those who think they know more about God than anybody else. You need them to challenge, combat your faith tradition. But then again, there is verse 17. There's another character. It's the father. It's the father who steps out from the questioning of Jesus. Why are you discussing or what are you discussing? And the father steps forth and says, teacher, I brought my son who's possessed by spirit. And this spirit throws his life into chaos. And I brought him to your disciples and asked them to cast it out and they couldn't do it. And the teacher is overwhelmingly disappointed in them because the teacher knows that he's already given those disciples power to do whatever they need to do. Even though they are struggling with unbelief, even though they want to do better, they must engage the power within to do better based on what God has said to them and yet they do not do that. They find themselves drifting in their own rationality. But we need that father because that father is the kind of something or someone who conditions our faith. See, I not only have to have combatants of the faith, but I have to have something to condition it. And that's exactly what God permits from time to time. I'm reminded of the story in which in the civil rights movement when they were boycotting and they could not ride the bus, they decided not to ride the bus, so they would take cars, cab services provided By the community, and when that was not available, they would simply walk. There's a story of one 70 year old woman who could not get a cab and decided that day to walk to work. And on her way to work, someone stopped by and asked, Can I give you a ride? And she said, No. She said, No because we are about a task, and the only way we seem to get there is to walk through this present condition that we're in. So the person said, but aren't you tired? And she says in return, yeah, my, my body is tired, but my spirit is at rest. It's at rest because it knows that this is the conditioning that we're going to have to walk through to make the point of our faith condition in change. And I think that's what God is trying to tell us in a very indirect fashion this morning. Every now and then I have to allow your faith to be confronted by a condition that you cannot naturally change in your own strength. And yet I have to stretch you and challenge you To help you realize that your faith is at a certain level but yet to combat this challenge I need to elevate it to another level but I can't get it there unless I allow something to condition where your faith is. And I don't like to be stretched. I don't like to be tried by the fire. But you cannot pray, Lord, I want to do better and I want to be better and help my unbelief if you're not willing to let God challenge your unbelief. And then there's another character in the story, a son. We're going to talk more about the son on next week, but it's the son, it's the very son who's possessed by the spirit that we don't don't only have the combatants of our faith and the condition of our faith, but we have this son who's the challenge of our faith. This son proved to be a tremendous challenge to these disciples. So much so that they couldn't handle the challenge. Or at least they told themselves they couldn't handle the challenge. See, this story is almost a reflection of what we find in the book of Numbers of the Old Testament. When Moses sends that group of spies into the land of Canaan to discover what's there, and most importantly, if God's word is true, when those 12 spies come back, 10 of them says, let me tell you one thing. First of all, the land indeed is fruitful. It's so fruitful that the cluster of grapes there are at such large magnitude that it takes two of us. In fact, we brought back some evidence. Two of us had to bring this cluster back on the pole. But we also must tell you that there are giants in the land and the giants in the land suggest to us that we look like nothing more than grasshoppers in their eyes. In other words, we may have been promised the land, but we can't conquer the land because the challenge is too large for us. And the question becomes, when you read the narrative, I believe it is, of, X, of Numbers 13 and 14, who told you that you were grasshoppers in the eyes of the giants? But there were two, Joshua and Caleb, who were declaring, wait a minute, that pessimistic view is not what the Father told us. The Father made us the promise. That land is yours. I just want you to go over and see that what I said is indeed true. And Joshua and Caleb says, listen, if God made us the promise, It doesn't matter even though I'm never going to admit this about myself but it doesn't matter if I am a grasshopper in the eyes of the giant. The giant is not the giant of all giants and the giant is not as big as my God and I'm not going to reduce who I am to a mere grasshopper. They were struggling with unbelief. They believed That God had made a promise for they went into the land. But when they got the evidence that God had gave them that his promise was true, they still struggled with unbelief. How, How do you go into a land where you have been promised that its abundancy is represented by clusters of grapes. And you got to bring the grapes back On the shoulders of two men. Now here's enough evidence to convince you. That there must be something fertile and fruitful about this land. And yet with the evidence on your back. You're going to come back and tell God. I still don't believe we can conquer the land. And that's what these disciples are doing right here in this episode with this young man. You need this son who's possessed by a spirit that is beyond your natural comprehension because he's going to stretch and he's also going to challenge what you believe. And, and, and then you have the final person, Jesus, who is at the center of every aspect of this episode, of this movement. Verse 19 says he's there to rebuke these disciples because the frustration of Jesus, he is frustrated because he knows that in chapter three, verse 15, and chapter six, verse seven, he gave them power, power to exercise exorcisms to cast them out he gave them power specifically to handle this kind of moment and yet the moment beat them and he's angry he says to them you are an unbelieving generation how long do I have to put up with this stuff that you're doing as much as I've done for you as much as I've demonstrated for you as much as I've given you as much as I've provided for you as much as I've protected you as much as I've stood with you as much as I've made a way for you as much as I've opened a door for you as much as I've kept you protected from evil as much as I've healed you and you still won't believe that I am who I say I am And that's the challenge we have this morning. That's what Jesus is saying to us. How is it that as many doors as I've opened up and as many protection I've given you down the dangerous highways and as many opportunities I've made available for you and as many sick beds as I've lifted you from and as many bills as I've paid for you and as many matters in which I've made sure you had all that you need and because now you are faced with a moment that's larger than you are, you are going to exercise unbelief and I've already given you all the power that you need to call that thing out and yet you're letting it get the best of you so Jesus sometimes has to rebuke us even in our unbelief because he has to remind us just as he did in the Old Testament all them grapes on your shoulders And you still can't believe that I can handle the giant in the land? And here we are in this sanctuary this morning. All them grapes we got back at home. All that grape we got out there in that driveway. All these grapes we're wearing. All of them grapes that we consume in terms of the nurture of our body, and all those grapes in terms of an occupation job, and yet God says, You still got to question me. But at least the Father says, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And and, and we got to get to a point where we are honest, we got to be honest. Lord I believe on Sunday because I'm around other believers but on Monday in the presence of unbelievers somehow I engage more unbelief and Jesus comes and he rebukes them right there he rebukes them he rebukes them in verse 19 I can't believe it how long do I have to put up with you bring that boy to me But Jesus is also here to at least restore. See verse 25? Even in this boy's life, Jesus is here to demonstrate if you exercise what I gave you, restoration is always possible. If you just exercise what I gave you. He says to the father, the boy's life can be changed in fact, the changes of this boy's life is really in your hands. Because what he's going to do is provide what seems to be normality. He's going to provide that and yet he's going to remove the nemesis from the boy's life. That which keeps him from being all that he needs to be. He will remove that nemesis from his life and say to the disciples, this is what you got the power to do. More than what you think, if I can just get you to believe. See that's verse 25. And what does he do? He looks at that which is crippling the boy's life. And read the story closely because there's an imperative there. He says, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you. Do you Do you see the emphaticness there in that I command you? Every now and then, you got to stop being timid and reach in your heart where God has stored in terms of the word and stand on it and say, you know what? Come hell or high water. In the name of Jesus, I command this to be out of my life, to be out of my family, to be out of my circle, to be out of my mind, to be out of my heart, to get out of my body, to get out of this space. I command it and tell the evil presence, out you go in the name of Jesus. And look what he says. Come out of him, watch this, come out of him and don't come back again. And we'll talk about it more next week. But whenever you stand up and start using the word of God. Oh, don't think the enemy going to lay down and just simply say, oh, I'm fearful. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, and after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it did come out. But in other words, Mark is trying to tell us, but rest assured, it might not lead without giving you a good fight. But that's all right. I don't mind a good fight, brethren, when I already know what the end of the fight is going to look like. That means I'm going to be the victor standing in the victory circle, and I'm going to be the one holding up the arms as victorious, but I got to engage in the fight. So that I will know that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that I have ever ask or think in the fight, and that's what happens. So Jesus rebukes and Jesus restores, and by restoring, He helped those disciples. See, you got in you all that you need. And you know what Mark is trying to tell us? We 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 walk around stumbling and struggling and suggesting to ourselves that it's not going to get better, that we are not going to get better, that the situation is not going to change. When Marcus says, I rebuke that, you got everything in you that you need to be victorious. One thing you got to do is stop complaining. Stop complaining and stop allowing your conscience to engage in consistent complaints and transition it to celebration. Celebration with an anticipatory aspect that I know that this might be the way it is right now, but this is going to change soon. I just got to wait for God to work all things together for the good, but this will change because I got it in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And I know that to be the case because Jesus also came to make them reflect. See the last verse, verse 29. For the disciples were struggling trying to figure out this entire episode in changing this boy's life, we watched Jesus do it in a mighty way and when the whole crowd has cleared and the smoke is gone, they take Jesus aside privately and just ask one single question. Why we couldn't do that? What do we like, Jesus? How come we couldn't call that spirit out like you just did? We've been following you now for a couple of years and and we know the drill. Why we couldn't speak the word and something happens and Jesus tells them because at this level of spiritual warfare you can't win this without being a prayer warrior. There it is right there. There it is right there in verse 29. This kind says Jesus can't come out. See that? Watch, watch the verbiage This kind This kind of evil spirit That throws the boy Into convulsions That creates chaos in his life This kind can't come out Except By prayer Because Jesus is saying You got to engage more Than your mere Knowledge of the word You need the power of God To intervene. And and can you imagine those disciples listening at saying to themselves, I still can't figure that out, Jesus. But okay, Jesus, that's what whatever you say. Just like us, we're the same way. Lord, that's all it took was for me to pray to you? That's all it was. I, don't, I can't figure that out Lord It certain to me There should have been more That had to be done Than just prayer No that, That's all I need for you to do Ask And it shall be given Seek And ye shall find Knock And the door shall be open. See your unbelief has to be challenged enough that it might exercise its ability to not only work, but I need you to voluntarily push. So that means I gotta pray until something happens in this situation. So Jesus says, I want you to think about that. That's what reflection is. I want you to think about how powerful prayer is. See, because I told you, Daddy told you on the Mount Transfiguration, all you got to do is listen to me and you'll have your answer. I want you to reflect. And every now and then God puts us in a situation where we have to reflect. Why? Why am I struggling with this when God's already brought me through this before? Why do I have unbelief when I've already had even more challenges, deeper, more challenging than this one? Why am I engaging in unbelief? Because I think every now and then we got to go back and remember from whom all blessings flow. And you got to go back and look at how God has blessed thus far just to remind you Of how faithful and good God is. And that this is just another step in the journey. That's all it is. So the disciples do something for us and then I'm done. The disciples generate for us in their demonstration certain elements that keeps us from doing better. Certain behaviors, pathologies, whatever you want to call them. We engage them, which really overall keeps us from doing better. The first is allowing uncertainty to live in our spirit. Watch this. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, when they are on the Mount of Transfiguration, argues that there's an uncertainty, at least in the mind of some, if not Peter at least of these disciples When they witnessed the presence of Elijah and Moses Look what the text says in verse 6 of chapter 9 of Mark For he did not know what to answer So they became terrified Here's a challenging word Because Peter didn't know how to respond to this moment that heaven had opened up and had declared such glory in their presence. So Peter thought what we would do is institutionalize the moment. Lord, let's make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's exercise tradition and let's build a monument. We do that when we're uncertain as to what the future will be. So that helps us have some idea of what the future could look like that we might desire. And Jesus, along with God, makes clear to us, that's not what I want you to do. I don't want you to traditionalize or memorialize a moment I don't want you to build a statue. I don't want you to build a memorial there. I want you to seek the moment that it might move you to something greater than what you currently are. And that uncertainty reigned in their mind. What what does it mean on this mountain? What does the mountain mean, says the text? Look at verse 10, they wanted to know. It sees them when Jesus says don't don't tell anybody what you've seen today You're going to have to wait until I have risen from the dead And Peter says along with the other disciples what, What does he mean by this? What does being risen from the dead mean? What does resurrection mean? When we have uncertainty we move in unbelief sometimes We allow that to dictate what our faith structure will be And as a result, unbelief takes over us and it causes us to wrestle with questions instead of reasoning in the faith that we have in God. In fact, we might be wise to take the instruction of Solomon in both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, pursue wisdom. Find wisdom, says the text. Get wisdom for the lack of wisdom will keep you from getting better cuz you can't do what you don't know and one excuse we have is that you know the the inability should i say the the undesiring spirit in us not to commit to reading the word enables us to practice uncertainty Because if I don't read the word, I don't know what God says. I don't know what God says. I can't be held accountable for what I don't know. Which is an untruth. Which is an untruth. And so uncertainty keeps us from doing better. But not just uncertainty, the lack of understanding. Uncertainty keeps us from doing better, and the lack of understanding keeps us from doing better. Here's an interesting thing. Uh, Someone has said that a lack of understanding Does not hurt as much as the lack of effort to understand does See it's not so much that I don't but, But do I have the aspiration to seek to understand And I can tell you in both the Old and the New Testament God knew and later quoted by Jesus That we aren't very good at seeking to understand We struggle at that. In fact, God identified Israel and Isaiah and he told Isaiah the prophet to remind them of something. Isaiah chapter six, verse nine and 10. Here's what he said. He says, go tell the people, keep on listening, but you don't perceive. Keep on looking and you don't understand. He says in verse 10, render the heart of this people insensitive because when I speak, they really aren't listening. He says this, their ears are dull, their eyes are dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, they might hear with their ears, they might understand with their heart, and in doing so, they just might be healed. But the text is arguing because they purposely, that's, that seems to be the insinuation to check, they, they purposely don't want to see, and they purposely don't want to hear. Because it really may mean that they not only will be healed, but they may have to work for the healing. And that's something that they may not want to do. Soren Kierkegaard says regarding the lack of understanding. Here's what he says. The Danish philosopher says this way. I think it's very interesting. He says that the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Could Kierkegaard be true? We don't want to understand because that means we got to change our behavior. We have to change our opinion. We have to change our mindset. We have to change how we look at things. And the ch- you know how we are about change. Change is something we really don't want to do unless we can immediately witness that it's beneficial for us. And in other words, Kierkegaard along with Isaiah is trying to tell us if you want God to work in your life, well, you're going to have to make some change First. Not God, you. Let's just look at it with a natural equation. Because God ain't the one with an issue. I mean, God ain't praying to God, help me get out of this thing, Lord. You don't hear the text saying, God to God, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. No, that's you and I. And so in other words when we get to the New Testament we take some quotes to text from Isaiah because the disciples raised the same in question but another fact they why you always speak in parables why, why are you always using that as a teaching model and Jesus says to them speak to people in parables because while they are seeing they really don't see and while they are hearing they actually really don't hear nor Do they understand? And you think that's something. He goes on to tell them in a very profound fashion about their own spirituality. But he says to them in a very powerful way, he says, listen. In verse 14 of chapter 13 of Matthew, he says, in their case of the prophecy, he quotes again Isaiah. You will keep on hearing, but while not understanding, and you will keep on seeing perceived, for the heart of the people has become dull, and with their eye or with their ears they scarcely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with the heart in return, and I should heal them. Verse sixteen. But blessed are your eyes because you do see, or they see, and your ears, because they hear, for truly I say to you and many prophets and righteous are to see what you have seen and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know what that says? Your ancestors wanted to see what you see and didn't. Look how blessed you are. And yet they believed me and didn't see it. And yet you got it and can't see it nor believe it. They didn't have it and believe it and saw it. It's almost like they're saying we have to admit Grandmama and them did more with less. And here we are in the 21st century, we do less with more. Figure that out, you mathematicians in here. How you do more with less, and then you get less, and yet you can do more. How does that work? Because when you got less, and you manage to do more, you can see more. See, when you have more, you manage to do less because you can't see anymore. So your vision is only as far as it can see. But when you have less, you have to use your imagination and see more. That's how come grandmama and them could take one potato and almost feed everybody in the whole household because they had a million ways they'd make that one potato work for many different meals. Now that's being sarcastic, but you see my point. They had a way of using that little that they had to feed everyone. I bet you ask anybody from the South, you didn't go hungry. Right. They wouldn't throw anything away. Grandma wouldn't let you throw anything away. Grandma would take pieces of old clothes and we would throw together and make a coming, And you're going to need some cover in the midnight hour. She would make something out of nothing. It seems antiquated and out of step with humanity for us, but they would carve out cardboard soles, put in the shoe to make the shoe last a long time. I know that sounds awful, does that? That's pitiful. But yet they had more than what we had. See, they may not have had more money, but they had more faith. They had to, they had to have more faith to continue to believe year in and year out that God would make a way somehow. No, they didn't have the five, six, seven-bedroom house we have, didn't have the three-car garage, didn't have 3 cars. in fact, they didn't have nothing other than the one room that we had. But they believed not in the stuff that we got, but in the stuff that makes us who we are. And they had understanding and we lacked so. Albert Einstein says, I didn't arrive at my understanding of the fundamental laws of the universe through my rational mind. In other words, Jesus in this entire story is trying to tell the disciples as well as us, you can't understand this by rationality. In fact, you have to engage the supernatural in order to understand why this happens in the natural. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2. That which is natural can't comprehend that which is supernatural. It it doesn't equate, it doesn't match up. And that's what faith is. It's the substance of that which is hoped for, but ain't no evidence that I can see that it's acting to come to pass. That's where my supernatural reality comes to pass. So the lack of understanding can lead us into some very disappointing and dark moments. And God says to Israel in Isaiah five thirteen, my people will go into exile because they lack understanding. Let me just give you this last point. I got much more. Let me give you this last point. Your ignorance is the only weapon Satan possesses against you. Your ignorance is the only weapon Satan possesses against you. See, remember Hosea 4 and 6? My people die, they perish for a lack of knowledge. Ignorance will beat you every time. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, but also get Understanding Here's the three things I want you to take away this morning Number one Choose Choose to learn Choose to learn Because when you do that That means you will choose to do better Choose To learn Then you will choose To do better Number two Commit to learn then that means you are committed to doing better. Commit to learn, then you will be committed to doing better. And number three, clarity in learning comes because you chose to learn and you committed to learn. Then that which is fuzzy in the vision clears up because what happens is clarity is allowed to bring about clear focus because you allow God to give you clear vision based on your choice. So the disciples received that single command, listen to my father, listen to my son, I'm sorry. They struggle with unbelief because they weren't listening to Jesus. We struggle because we ain't listening to God. And we underscore the value of Romans 10 15. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. That's how you deal with unbelief, the Word. Get into the Word. That's what's going to eliminate your unbelief, the Word. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God. That's that's what's going to get rid of your unbelief. That's That's what's going to help you exercise the power in you to meet that challenge that is before you. And that's what will give you power to say, in the name of Jesus, I command you. And there you go. Lord, in the text of Mark 9, thank you for the word of God that gives us hope, strength, power, encouragement. Thank you for allowing us to see in the text that we are indeed powerful beings because of the Christ that lives in us as you gave those.